Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. What is a legacy? As the artist Lin-Manuel Miranda tells us, it's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. American presidents, regardless of party, spend a great deal of time during their presidencies and after they leave office thinking about their own legacies and how people will study and remember their administrations. Regardless of whether the 2020 presidential election results in a second term for President Trump or an initial one for President Biden, both men and the people in their administrations are or will be thinking about what to plant in those gardens. Indeed, during his retirement from the presidency in the late 1790s, George Washington often devoted time to the arrangement and overhaul of my voluminous public papers, civil and military, that they may go into secure deposits. Washington, who was born a subject of King George II and died as the first ex-president of the United States, knew better than most that his papers might be of interest to future historians like me and the public in general. Today's show builds on this week's virtual George Washington Symposium at the Washington Library, which is dedicated to consequential elections in American presidential history. We're going to explore on the program one aspect of how modern presidents and their administrations preserve records and their memories of the past through oral history. It is now common in the modern era for former presidents to build libraries to hold these records and to partner with colleges and universities to conduct oral history programs. And I can't begin to tell you how how amazing it would be for me and my fellow historians of early America to have recordings of the people we study. At least we could then have the answer to that burning question, did Washington have any semblance of an English accent? Dr. Evan D. McCormick joins me today to talk about the now-in-progress Obama Presidency Oral History Project at Columbia University. McCormick is an associate research scholar with the project, and Columbia was chosen by the Obama Foundation to oversee the Oral History Initiative. McCormick is also a historian of the United States and the world, and he is completing a book on Ronald Reagan's policies towards Latin America. He and I dive into the significance of conducting oral histories for preserving and interpreting the legacy of modern presidents, the shape of the Obama project, and the contrast between the kinds of sources that historians of early and modern America use to reconstruct the past. Now, as I said, this episode dovetails into this week's virtual George Washington Symposium, which is entirely free. If you'd like to watch the replays of those live stream interviews with historians such as David Stewart, Jeffrey Pasley, Elizabeth Farron, Donald Ritchie, and Alan Price, please visit www.mountvernon.org slash gwsymposium. And with that, let's record an oral history of the Obama administration with Evan D. McCormick. Well, I mean, it gets its opportunity that we're talking over Zoom and we're talking about audio recordings because you are one of the lead directors of the Obama Oral History Project there at Columbia University. And I, you know, I thought we'd, we'd spend a lot of time talking about that project and talking about oral history, which is something that uh, as somebody who studies the 18th century and the American Revolution, you know, all my friends are dead, so I can't talk to them. I have to rely on letters and man, you know, manuscripts and other kinds of, of documentary evidence to sort of get at what people were doing in the period that I'm studying. But um, you actually get to talk to some of the participants who were making that history and who were reflecting on what they did as part of President Obama's administration. So tell us, Evan McCormick, what is an oral history? Yeah, so oral history, you think about it, it's different than a deposition kind of in an important way in that it's an engaged conversation between a subject who is who is interesting because they were involved in the events and somebody who's thinking and listening critically to their memory of those events. So oral history does one very basic thing, which is to create a record of the thoughts and um, recollections, experiences of people whose participation in particular events or times is, uh, is interesting. So, um, it's interesting that you bring up your, uh, your 18th century uh, interlocutors who are not, not exactly uh, talkative um, because, I mean, one of the reasons that oral history kind of developed as a field is thinking about um, ways to fill gaps in the historical record. In the 1940s, Alan Nevins, who kind of developed mm-hmm. oral history at Columbia, um, was thinking about what was, um, as people started relying less on written records, he saw oral history interviews as a way to supplement the record, try and find out what people were thinking when they were doing things. If they were now relying more on the telephone, you would have to find different ways to kind of create a record around that. Um, When the Miller Center at University of Virginia began uh, working on oral histories, um, first with the Clinton administration, they were taking a similar approach, which was to say, 
actors have gotten a little bit smarter in thinking about what gets committed to the mm -hmm. record. So it's not simply that you're not getting in those written records what um, what's actually taking place, but that there is a kind of level of thinking that is not always committed to that record. Our approach at the Obama Oral History Project is even a little bit more expansive than that. Of course, we're interested in many of those questions, kind of what were people thinking, at a particular moment in time, what are some of the recollections of who was there, what are particular stories, but we're also interested in kind of a collective mindset or understanding of kind of what was going on in the presidency at that time. What was the relationship between the presidency and its social and global context? So that's kind of a long answer to, to tell you kind of what oral historians working on the presidency, because of course oral history doesn't you know, just focus on political or policy actors are thinking about in terms of what it can do. Now, when that boils down to an actual interview, it's a really interesting process. No two oral history interviews are the same. And if you were to record the same oral history with the same interviewer in person mm -hmm. 100 times, you'd get 100 different interviews because you are always, it is an interactive experience. It's not simply tell me about this moment and the person remembers it in a particular way. You are interacting in the sense you're, you're responding to the way that they answer questions with perhaps a decision to dive deeper on a particular topic. You're reading their facial expressions, their emotions to try and understand where there's a possibility to go deeper or perhaps even broaden out to get them to reflect on something more expansive. So I'd liken a deposition more to the way journalists approach interviews, which is mm. there's a particular nugget that you're trying to get, whether it's a question of causality or detail, or you're simply trying to get quotes. For oral historians, it's much more expansive. You're always kind of thinking about those interviews in relationship to the other interviews you're doing for the project or the other records that you know already exist. So you're kind of thinking socially in the interview itself that together these things will create, you know, not just a historical record about a particular decision or something like that, but an archive actually through all these interviews that can um, allow historians to come in and answer questions that uh, interest them. Well, I think it's really fascinating. And actually, I want to talk a, a lot about that and especially the distinctions between, you know, the kind of work that I do in the 18th century and, and what you're doing with these oral history interviews and the relationship between our respective training as historians and how we actually approach uh, these kinds of projects in similar and yet different ways. Uh, but before we get there, actually, let's let's just sort of get some some foundations on the table and talk about the broader concept of the Obama Oral History Initiative and what that is, and and just some of the basic details, so that uh, when this thing I think goes live in 2026, if I remember rightly, um, people will know that there is a a repository out there in the public realm that they can then go and listen to uh, some of the key players uh, who were shaping U.S. and national policy over the course of uh, those eight years. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to talk about this because it's been one of the most exciting uh, developments in my professional life. So I, perhaps I'm biased, but I think this is a, a really exciting uh, development intellectually um, for historians and for, for the public and for, for teachers at all levels. So the Obama Presidency Oral History Project started about a year and a half ago. My own story with it begins a little bit after that. When the Obama Foundation uh, decided to partner with Center at Columbia called Insight, the Interdisciplinary Center for Innovative Theory and Empirics, which as the name might betray, uh, is populated largely but not exclusively by social scientists. Mm -hmm. But it is interdisciplinary. It's a really exciting uh, Center for Research that also houses the uh, Columbia Center for Oral History Research. And so the Obama Foundation selected Columbia's uh, insight to develop the oral history project for the Obama presidency. And the project that was envisioned and that, that we're now about a year into is um, unlike any other presidential oral history that's been done to the stage um, in its design. And that's largely what I'm going to be talking about mm -hmm. today. I've mentioned you before, I can't you know, I can't talk at all about any of the contents of uh, the interviews, which will go public no earlier than 2024 and no later than 2026. Mm -hmm. But you're going to actually say yeah, you're going to you're going you're gonna to tell me off camera, right? You're going to tell me everything. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but this is actually I mean, it's worth noting that this time frame is actually it's it's a pretty quick pace for and a commitment to make these things public 
as early as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all of our narrators, which is what we call interviewers, they're all in their participation. Um, you know, they're all aware of that, that time frame. And as far as oral histories go, it's actually quick, because if you consider that many of the written records from any presidential administration often don't see the light of day for, you know, decades in yeah. some cases, having the opportunity to talk to individuals on the record in a historical frame, which I think is an important distinction between a formal oral history project and, and the many interviews or podcasts that they themselves are, are recording um, is, is really a benefit. So to talk about the scope of the project, um, mm -hmm. as it was envisioned and as we're working on it, the plan is for, for hundreds of interviews. Um, in the past, presidential oral histories, this dates back to the Hoover administration and some of the oral histories that were done by the presidential libraries themselves, the idea is to kind of start with the elites within the presidency and really focus on the circles that surrounded them, people that knew the president, worked with the president on particular issues. And that's kind of always been the idea about what you're looking to capture in your oral history. The Obama oral history is different in that what Columbia envisioned is an oral history that mirrors the way we want to think about the presidency in an intellectual sense, which is that it's embedded in social and cultural contexts. So many of the interviews we do will look like those traditional oral history interviews in terms of who we're speaking to, secretaries of state, national security advisors. But then we also want to move a level beyond that to mm -hmm. what we might call mid-level decision makers, which look different in a domestic and, and international context, thinking about social policy or military policy. But then even moving beyond that, we're really interested in capturing interviews with people outside of the presidency. So leaders of social movements, critics of the Obama administration, be it on the Hill or in uh, the press, for example. And then probably the most exciting part of the project is um, the commitment to bring in a large number of what we're calling ordinary voices. Now, mm -hmm. the, the question of, of what is an ordinary voice is, of course, a very complicated one. But the idea is that if you want to understand the presidency and its relationship to American democracy at a particular moment, and particularly thinking about the significance of the Obama years, that you also have to, don't have to, but we really want to capture these, um, the voices of, of uh, American citizens mm -hmm. and citizens elsewhere who are kind of interacting with the presidency or coming into contact with it in some way. To understand presidential power, not just emanating out from, from, the, from the White House and the Oval Office, but how it works its way through particular decisions, how it's experienced by citizens who push for change or sometimes satisfied with those changes and many times not. So the result is an oral history that's unprecedented in scope mm -hmm. in terms of the number of people, as I mentioned, hundreds of them that we want to interview uh, over the next several years and then scale as well as we think about the, the types of people uh, that we'll be talking to. As a curatorial project in the oral history library at Columbia um, and our, our counterpart there, Kimberly Springer, who's the, the lead archivist for the project, it's going to be a massive uh, undertaking and I, I don't have the, the exact number of hours in front of me, but based on early returns, the, the, the number of hours that this project uh, produces of material is going to be in the thousands. So this is what we'll be focused on uh, over the next uh, five or six years. And, um, and it's just really excited to mm -hmm. be a part of it. You know, it's been an interesting turn for me in my career because at this, at this moment, I'm kind of thinking in two registers. The first is as somebody kind of constructing an archive, and the second is as a historian. So mm -hmm. at the moment, you know, we're literally thinking about what types of people do we want to interview, which individual people can help us understand a particular area, what's important to cover. And you almost have to divorce yourself from the analytical side of what you will eventually, what I will eventually want to write mm -hmm. or comment on in these years. So I should say that as, you know, as part of my duties at Columbia, eventually the, the plan is, and I'm really excited to be writing on the Obama years. Oh, but yeah. at the moment, you know, I'm an interviewer first and foremost. And so I have to think kind of expansively about what other people, mm -hmm. what other citizens, what other teachers, what other um, researchers will want to get out of the archive. So I have to think kind of holistically about the project. Like I said, almost like we're constructing an archive from yeah. the ground up. And it's incredibly exciting. Um, but then also knowing that 
in the future, I will be one of the first users of that mm -hmm. archive in order to begin to write on the significance of Obama's foreign policy. Well, and let's uh, sort of pick up that thread a little bit, because I, I do want to talk about that uh, with my own work as well. And as we talked last night when we were having our, our, our pregame discussion, you know, we, we, we thought we would talk about both our respective disciplines and fields and how they intersect, but also sort of our career paths. And I've got some archival projects in the works as well that, you know, I face similar challenges. So I want to, I do want to talk about that. Before we do, there was actually something you, you mentioned about, you know, how this is a different kind of oral history project. And it makes me think about, you know, what people often say is, you know, why are we still studying the presidency? What's the point? You know, do the presidents really matter or should we focus our attention more on local or state level developments or uh, community developments and, and the progress of, of social and cultural history? You know, why does the presidency matter? Uh, clearly, by virtue of having this project, uh, the presidency does matter. But how is this project reflective of sort of our shift in thinking about the president's and the presidency's relationship to other forces in American and international society? Yeah, I mean, I would say just as a, as a general, almost non-academic comment, it, it seems like as a, as a public here, you know, we're here we are in July of, of 2020, it seems like Americans' attitudes towards the, the presidency and its significance um, are almost manic. We go through mm -hmm. periods where the presidency seems so clearly to be the driver of uh, what, it, you know, for good or ill, what is, you know, what we are thinking about collectively. And then there are moments that seem to almost on a dime convince us that surely it's the power of social movements, of exogenous factors that the White House is, you know, reacting to mm -hmm. that have kind of, and we realize that, you know, we've, we've got a completely skewed view of our kind of White House centric uh, understanding of political power in the United States. I'm convinced and have been for a long time that it's, it's simply much more complex than that. And I think that's something that many scholars over the last kind of 30 or 40 years have been grappling with. I, you know, you and I attended graduate school at the University of Virginia during the, almost the identical period, mm -hmm. having started in 2009. And I think we, we came in during a really uh, helpful time for kind of thinking through these things because we we came in kind of at the heart of when there was a push for for what I'd call the kind of new political history that mm -hmm. moves moves on from focusing on elite actors or elite institutions to as I've you know I've used this phrase several times but understanding how their social and political contexts can kind of um, shape what they do but also you can see how the White House in turn does have power in certain circumstances and wields tremendous power um, in, in many, especially thinking about foreign affairs to kind of shape those very social and cultural contexts. The power moves in both directions, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, during graduate school, uh, the Miller Center at UVA hosted a conference that Brian Ballow from UVA and Bruce Shulman uh, put on called Recapturing the Oval Office. It might have been called something else. The book that came out of it was called Recapturing the Oval Office. And the, the kind of argument behind the, the conference and the papers that came out of it is that, you know, historians have for so long kind of shied away from studying the presidency, or at least 20th century uh, historians had, maybe that's something we should talk about, um, <laughs> had kind of shied away from focusing on the presidency at a moment that we kind of intuitively, this would have been at the heart of the Obama years, yeah. we understand that clearly there is there's something to that relationship between the presidency and what's going on culturally and socially it seems like writing a social and cultural history of the obama years without talking about the white house would be seriously problematic at the same time writing a history of the obama years and only focusing on the white house would be extremely problematic you know as you think about the the many cultural and social movements that we're still seeing today mm -hmm. that grew up during that time. Um, many of the forces of, of white supremacy and conservative reaction uh, to his presidency that manifested themselves in Charlottesville, um, the Black Lives Matter movement growing up during those years. I mean, the arguments just seem to be obvious that the, yeah. the presidency's um, relationship with these things is one that's complicated and we need to kind of think about ways to actually study them. 
uh, in, in ways that, that kind of mirror that, that complicated reality. Now, to be fair, I think a lot of people are doing this and have done this. So I don't, I don't want to say that mm -hmm. this is work to be done in the future. I can think of, um, you know, many, many uh, historians and uh, political scientists will, will, will say they've been doing this for years, which is, which is very true. I think among historians, it takes a, there's been a very deliberate effort to kind of understand what this new political history is. So what I see as novel and what we're doing with the Obama uh, Oral History Project is to, for the first time, create an oral history archive that reflects that complexity. Mm. So this archive, as we've designed it, will be so large that the archive doesn't reflect one single story about the presidency. The idea is that somebody, there, there are so many different entry points into that archive, somebody wanting to understand the history of a particular movement or the story of an opposition legislator from the Republican Party, for example, that would then connect with other oral histories in that archive and could produce an infinite number mm -hmm. of stories that people would want to tell and would want to understand about the Obama years. Well, it's fascinating to think about in relation to how historians have worked in the 18th century over the past, you know, several decades. And as you were talking about the emergence of what you've called this, this new political history, I was thinking about my own field because it, for a great many years, since especially since the 80s, uh, a lot of, of early Americanists have been focused on social and cultural history. And uh, with the exception of, of those who had attained, shall we say, the, the, the free time and ability to focus on uh, what, we, what we call the founder chic, right? The, the major books centered on founding fathers like Washington and Jefferson and Madison. But uh, I, I'm sort of seeing it in my own field lately that there is this emerging trend where people are, I guess, following the, the path that the 20th century historians may have, have blazed by merging as a social and cultural history with a political history to produce something that's much more expansive and richer than we had before. And so certainly, you know, a lot of these important figures like Washington and Jefferson are still there. So if you look at something like Catherine Duvall's Independence Lost, Lives on the Edge of the American Revolution, or Maya Jasanoff's Liberty's Exiles, you know, the, the quote unquote important figures of like Washington and Jefferson are still there because they're are part of the, the American revolutionary moment. But you know, we're able to take uh, what we've learned from political history and from the military history of the war and merge that to see how that's actually affecting, you know, quote unquote, ordinary people in their everyday lives. I don't know who's, who's influenced who, but it seems like we're moving in a, in a sort of parallel direction with our respective fields. Yeah, and I, I would note that it's not easy. It's very intellectually challenging to merge an understanding of power that moves mm -hmm. in both directions. And that's why I want to I be clear that, that there are a number of people who have been working in this way recently um, and, and not say that are kind of thinking about this as novel, but more the, the kind of construction of the oral history archive. But certainly people like um, um, one of our graduate school colleagues, Lauren Turek's work on oh, um, mm -hmm. religion and, and foreign policy does a beautiful job of kind of integrating the, in, you know, the influence of religious beliefs on elite decisions about human rights mm -hmm. policy. In fact, a lot of the work on human rights in the 1970s uh, in particular, um, which has come out in the last decade or so, has been kind of influential on me in this regard. Um, um, Sarah Snyder's recent book, on uh, the connections between civil rights and human rights is another example. Um, it is it is gratifying, but it's also not easy. I mean, it's it's mm -hmm. it's difficult to decenter the presidency without totally obscuring it, and it's difficult to bring the presidency back in without overplaying the importance of elites and of the White House itself. Which is one of the reasons why, at the moment, kind of thinking about. How do you construct an archive? How yeah. do you design a project that interviews enough people from enough different kind of, uh, I don't want to say levels, but uh, different points of view mm -hmm. that they can kind of give voice to this richness is really exciting. The difficulty will be when I, uh, when I put on my uh, historian's hat slightly later <laughs> on. Of course, I'm doing these two things at the same time, but as yeah. I think about what it is that I will want to write in my future best-selling book, about the uh, Obama years, you know, it, it will be to to kind of actually understand, mm -hmm. um, you know, 
the very dialogic of, of power. Well, let's talk about the construction of an archive, because I think it, it, you know, it can be lost on folks that archives are purposefully constructed things. They, they don't simply reflect someone's catch of papers or you know, something that is deposited in a library. There is a lot of work that goes into figuring out how to organize uh, an archive to make it make sense not just to the librarians, but future users of said archive. I mean, I'm thinking about my own experience. You know, as you know, I've got this Scottish Court of Session project that I'm building with colleagues at the University of Virginia Law Library, with with colleagues in Edinburgh and other places across uh, the Atlantic. And you know, these are 18th century session papers, so the the printed documents produced by Scotland's Supreme Civil Court. You know, I come at them from an interest of of an American historian who's interested in seeing how. Americans, both as colonists and later as citizens of the United States, and potentially you know, loyalists in exile, adjudicated legal disputes before the court and what that meant for the, the legal Atlantic, the construction of citizenship and national identity. So I come at it from that perspective. But as we're building it, you know, we're, we're very aware that this is um, an archive that reflects Scotland's national legal history and Scotland's place within the British Empire in the 18th century. So it just can't be me um, organizing these papers to suit my own research. You know, we have to think very carefully about how other people are going to use this material to do things that we perhaps will never anticipate. So as you are building your own matrix there at Columbia, as you're proceeding down that road and thinking about how to build this thing, what are the, some of the kind of questions you're asking yourself and what are kind of some of the processes you're putting in place so that you, as you've already suggested, don't accidentally create something just for yourself, but it, it's but it's something that can have a utility for a much wider audience. Yeah, this is a great uh, point for me to give uh, credit to the awesome larger team that mm-hmm. I'm a part of. This has been a really collaborative effort at Columbia, and it's really important because that's another, perhaps something we'll come back to, but um, has also been a kind of shift in my own kind of professional experience to go from where I was a year and a half ago, which was to be very focused on the work that I was doing to, mm-hmm. to finish the book that I was working on, the articles I was working on, to kind of being part of a collaborative effort that is, is tackling this. So just to say a little bit about that, we have a, a few principal investigators on the project. The lead principal investigator is Peter Behrman, who's a sociologist at uh, Columbia, has done a lot of work, really varied uh, work so varied, I, I don't think I could totally capture it, but it's done sociology projects, for example, on doormen of New York City, on um, the- Oh, um, I know that project. Yeah. 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 Wow. Um, he, um, with the uh, Center for, for Oral History uh, Research at Columbia, and our second principal investigator, um, Mary Marshall Clark, um, Peter and Mary Marshall um, developed a project on the lives of New Yorkers after 9-11, which was a, mm. also a large scale oral history project. They also worked together on a project on uh, Robert Rauschenberg's life, um, the, um, the artist um, that was completed relatively recently. And then Kimberly Springer, who I mentioned, who is the lead mm-hmm. uh, curator for the project. They are kind of the, the visionary leadership if you will, and, and what they made the decision to do um, was to go out and hire a few historians who would come in and help flesh out just these kinds of conceptual questions and also do a bulk of the interviews. So I'm part of a team that includes uh, Nicole Hemmer, historian mm-hmm. of uh, U.S. politics, and uh, Dove Weinrod Groskal, who's a, also a historian of U.S. politics, um, who did his degree at Princeton. And so the three of us, we are the Associate Research Scholars, which is our title at Columbia. Um, and then there's a, a much larger team that probably brings us up to about 14 or 15 people. And then we have an advisory board that's an incredibly diverse advisory board in terms of the scholarly and experiential kind of points of view they bring to the project from sociologists to uh, journalists to presidential historians kind of in the traditional mode to environmental historians. We talk a lot about socializing ideas. Mm. So we have had so many conversations from the start, which is when I joined the project was in August of last year, about what this archive would look like at the end and about what the interviews that would create material that would be in the archive would look like as well. So just to say a word about the archive, I mean, it almost might sound a little bit 
hubristic to be kind of talking about an archive this way, because yeah. as you kind of alluded to, even academic historians, or maybe especially academic historians, tend to kind of see an archive in indefinite article terms, the archive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something you, you know, in grad school, you learn to, to find it, to, you know, mm -hmm. to discover it, to go, you know, to go there, to have it teach you something. So this idea that it is actually constructed or can be constructed is a little bit disorienting. I'll admit that. But it's also, it's, it's really important to kind of understand that takes place within kind of the bounds of many mm -hmm. uh, socially responsible to each other academics who are thinking about these very questions, which is, and this is why I bifurcated the two roles of historian and oral historian, because right. at the moment as an oral historian, I'm thinking a lot about what would somebody like me in 50 years mm -hmm. want to know from an interview that would be done with, you know, it, it could be anyway, a specialist on the National Security Council on a particular topic, a secretary of state, an ambassador, a critic of the administration's foreign policy. What, what will be something that they will be looking for from that? And that's not a question I answer myself, um, which is what I was getting at with the collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, we are constantly kind of kind of thinking through these big conceptual questions about what the purpose of the archive will be. In practical terms, this involved a tremendous amount of research. So we spent and are still spending, to be honest, the first six months or so of the project was a really intensive period of research. The kind of approach was there, there's all this material that's already out there on the Obama administration, articles written at the time, interviews that Obama officials and their counterparts outside of government, there is this tremendous amount of material. So how do we kind of wrap our heads around it? Mm. So in terms of foreign policy, like one of the things that I did have the ability to do as the person that had been hired to kind of think about Obama in a global context was to think about kind of how would I segment the world in research terms in terms of thinking about what one needs to needs to know in order to prepare for interviews. So that has led to a number of kind of uh, research papers on nuclear nonproliferation, the US-Latin American relationship, Obama's relationship with Russia, which is obviously of interest now. All of these are, are written from open sources and they're, mm -hmm. they're essentially the kind of historiographical and secondary research work that you'd be quite familiar with, you know, kind of orienting yourself for any new project. What's different is that it then informs kind of how you go into an interview. And as I yeah. said before, you can never, you know, the point is never to game plan an interview because every narrator is different. Every response to, you could ask this, you know, different mm -hmm. people the same question, you're going to get all sorts of different types of responses, but is to simply think about what it is that people will come to the Obama presidency oral history project to learn. And can we try to make sure that interviews produce that kind of mm -hmm. knowledge that makes this archive kind of a, a coherent thing, yeah. if you will. And it's, it's coherent in, in two ways. One that somebody would, you know, in an interview with a particular person, it addresses the, the topics that you want to address that it asks probing questions or gets them to reflect on, on things that, um, you know, the public and that researchers will want to know. But also, as I said before, that socially the interviews connect to each other. Mm -hmm. you know, if your entry point into the archive is that, you know, you want to know what particular secretary of state was thinking at a particular moment, that in that same archive that's been curated, that there are also the comments of issue experts that worked on things, of negotiators who were part of a particular trade negotiations or treaty negotiations to the critics of the treaty to people who can actually speak to the experience of kind of how something like that or how a particular event shaped the way they were thinking about America's role in the world. All of that is to say it's an intensely, it's an intense effort, but it's also intensely collaborative, which mm -hmm. has been really rewarding. And if, you know, it's been really important not to feel that this is uh, you would never want my own scholarly interests to be overly reflected. Yeah. Um, although, if, you know, inevitably, I will, you know, as I said, I'll be one of the people who uses this archive early on. But I, um, 
you know, I, I remain embedded in, in my own social contexts. And, um, you know, I think I do a fairly good job of understanding what people who came up through grad school with me, who I know through um, Schaefer, my professional organization, what kinds of questions they mm -hmm. kind of anticipate um, will be important in a meta sense when they, you know, eventually get to read these transcripts. And um, we do our best to make sure that the the contents will will kind of produce new answers to those questions and produce new questions as well. Well, I think that's a really important point that you make. You, you have to be constantly uh, aware of your surroundings to make sure that um, your own sort of self-interest doesn't intrude upon the larger work that you're doing. And, and, and actually, I, I wanted to follow up on something you had said about, you said this earlier and you said it again here just a moment ago about sort of the, the ecosystem in which uh, or the, the archival ecosystem and the evidentiary ecosystem in which these oral histories sit. As you mentioned, it would be impossible to write a history of the Obama administration or a particular uh, policy decision or, or something to that effect using just these materials. I mean, they, are, they sit in relation to material that sits at other archives and repositories or is out there in the public sphere already. I mean, it would be as if I decided to write the history of the Washington administration just using the published papers of George Washington. You can't do it. And, and you, you would be rightly accused of dereliction of duty as a historian if you tried to do that. So as you're thinking about approaching an interview with a subject, and again, we, we, you know, we can't name names, uh, unfortunately, but as you're thinking about how you're going to proceed through the interview, what is the, the prep work involved? You know, for the podcast, uh, as, as you know, you know we, we talk ahead of time a little bit about uh, what we might want to do. Uh, or I'll send you a little game plan of how I think the conversation could proceed. But it sounds like in this case that you've probably got some big overarching questions you'd like to ask your guests or your interviewees, but then leave a lot of wiggle room to proceed down paths that suddenly they bring up or when you're thinking about the larger context in which these people are embedded, you know, pathways to pursue to get them to address particular topics uh, that you think are, are relevant or they have, they can bring a unique bearing on. And I spend most of my time these days preparing for interviews. It's a very intense process. It's always really rewarding. What's interesting about the preparation is during the interview, as the interviewer, you speak so little yeah. and <laughs> you spend months preparing for an interview in which you, you know, you, you will talk uh, in a good interview I'd estimate maybe a 20th of the mm -hmm. time or the text that it produces. But the preparation is so important because you have to be, as I said before, an informed and engaged listener. Mm -hmm. So that if you see a reaction or if you hear a reaction to a particular question, you know if there's maybe something else there, that it might connect to a different topic, or maybe you, you, you know ways that this person has talked or written about this issue in the public, and whether um, you know, there's, there's something more that you could get on the story, whether you've taken them into an area that they're very mm -hmm. comfortable with, or maybe have not spoken or written about before. It's really about kind of preparing to be very adaptive mm -hmm. during during the interview itself. As far as communication, and this, this would be a good point to kind of talk about our present circumstances because yeah. so much of oral history, the oral history field is based on intimacy. You, mm -hmm. you really strive in these conversations in all oral histories to have a warm, engaged rapport with your, uh, with the person that you're interviewing. And that starts the minute you contact them with an invitation, letting them know why they've been invited to participate in a project, but then importantly, before the interview. So every interviewer uh, and interviewee are, are different in the way they approach this. Some people like to give a lot of kind of structured thought to what might come up. Many people, you know, will just say, oh, I, you know, I remember that time and I'm ready to go, you know, mm -hmm. just let's, let's do this uh, as, as soon as you can. Whatever approach they take, it's kind of a case-by-case -case basis. The key is that you don't want to overscript any of these interviews. Yeah. That you want to have a broad outline of, you want to have objectives is the mm -hmm. way I would put it. And you want to 
you know, and I, I think that's true of both the interviewer and the narrator in terms of thinking about things that they would, would want to cover. But you never want to do too much to script ahead of time. Usually what I'll do is share kind of an outline of topics, but I, I try to uh, not preview particular questions mm -hmm. because I feel that that can too often, that frames a, a way of answering rather than a kind of broad set of reflections and memories, which yeah. are, which is what we'll you'll find in a in a in a really good oral history interview. Um, but it's you know it's every every single person is different, and you really have to kind of you kind of have to feel it out when you get in mm -hmm. the interview. The extent you know sometimes the contact before the interview is extremely minimal, but then you find when you're speaking to the person that they've in fact you know, use this as an opportunity to go back and revisit all of their, mm -hmm. their notes and records from the period. And sometimes that's not the case. So it's, you really have to be able to kind of think on your feet, but keeping in mind a firm sense of structurally what it is that you want to cover and also um, just kind of what the goal of the interview mm -hmm. is. Do you ever find that some people want more detailed questions? And then is there a, a period of negotiation where you, you have to kind of explain your methodology about why that's not the best idea? That can happen. I would just say broadly, I have not, I have not really mm -hmm. had much of that experience recently. I think it's important that we note that this is, we're doing this interview during the pandemic. So some yeah. of what I'm saying has been colored by the experience of interviewing people remotely over Zoom, mm -hmm. which is uncharted territory for me. And I think for a lot of oral historians, um, Certainly, this is not the, the first project to incorporate remote interviewing, but a lot of the training that we did early on and the thinking about the interviews from when, we, when I got to Columbia in August through to when we started the interviews, which was in February, basically. How's that for timing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, was thinking about developing this rapport, this kind of intimacy for the conversation in person. And we were faced with a, a choice, um, you know, whether to try and proceed with the project or whether to adjust our timetable. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments that I made as we were kind of thinking about this was that people who served in a White House, um, I don't think this is unique. To, I don't think this is because they were in the Obama administration, but White House officials from this time, I think were using digital technology to connect more so than any other previous Presidency, just as a matter of the technology that was available, the what they call civets, the secure video teleconferencing, mm -hmm. and other ways of connecting globally, meant that, like all of us, you learn pretty quickly how to adjust things like building trust, building connections online that you previously thought were only possible in person. And I'm happy to say that worn out. Um, I personally have done about about 15 interviews since we, you know, have been uh, socially distanced, and um, the quality of them has been really remarkably good. I was a proponent of this. I thought I thought it was important that we do this. I, most almost everyone shared that opinion in the end. It wasn't a, it wasn't an argument I had to win. It's been really rewarding to kind of see that this intimacy is possible. That this rapport building is possible even over Zoom. And in a way, it can be easier in some cases. When you, when you arrive at, a, at an interview location um, that you've never seen before, it can always be a bit intimidating. Mm -hmm. um, it's also worth thinking about the power dynamics involved in any interview. When you think about, you know, you arrive at the office of a you know, former high-level official. If you ask somebody to come to interview you at your location, they, you know, if they've never been there before, you know, it's a new environment, they're thinking about it. When you interview remotely, people tend to be in a place that's comfortable to them on both sides. There are all sorts of uh, unpredictable factors. Uh, I might have a cat, you know, enter the picture yeah. soon, if not. I'm, well, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure people have heard a meow from my cat who's sitting right underneath me right yeah. now. And in a way that can be incredibly humanizing, you know, mm -hmm. in, a, in a way where when you're not able to control the environment as carefully. Now, I will say I vastly prefer interviewing in person. Uh -huh. It's one of the most exciting things about oral history. I, th I think that's typically the case on, on both sides. 
but this was this was all to come back to your point that a lot of these questions about preparing for the interview, preparing the narrator, were really thrown into question in February when we decided that we'd be doing this remotely. Um, I wondered if it would change those calculations. Would there be more people who who you know, thought, well, you know, I I want to make sure I know exactly what's being asked of me. Yeah. Um, and and by and large, I could say that's that's not really been the case. That and I think it speaks to a broader, um, two broader things. One, that people, whether they're in the White House, outside of the White House, so-called you know, ordinary citizens or, or non-elites that we'd incorporate into this project, the idea of looking back is really appealing. And then the second thing I'd say is it's really appealing during this particular moment, mm -hmm. I think amidst the pandemic, the demonstrations after the murder of George Floyd. I mean, there's so many questions that a lot of people are wrestling with that they innately see as historical, that asking them to think back to a period that feels like it was part of a different sequence, a different trajectory to try and understand it and think through their role in it, you know, whether it was of questions of foreign policy or domestic policy or lawmaking, it feels really significant now. Mm -hmm. And it's been actually disorienting to be having all these conversations uh, over the computer, but at the same time, really exciting. Well, I think you make a lot of important points there. And I, it, we uh, experience sort of the same thing. You know, usually uh, in an ideal world, you and I would be sitting in the broadcast studio back at the library having this discussion. Uh, and then maybe going to lunch afterwards. But um, right now we're, we're doing this over Zoom. And so there's you know that connection, that physical connection is lost. But you're right, you know, over the past few weeks, people have been able to adapt pretty readily um, in ways that they, you know, maybe they didn't even expect and that they've been able to actually you know, do things like oral history, do things like podcast interviews and found that they have new outlets you know, to talk about the past in ways that they did not before. And as, as you were talking as well, I was thinking, again, back to my own frame of reference, a lot of folks in the 18th century, of course, we didn't have oral histories from them, but they often knew that they were a part of a historic moment, or they had enough self-awareness to realize that folks like me, 250 years later, would be interested in what they had to say about certain topics. And sometimes when they were writing, they, they wrote because they knew that something was going to be published they were consenting to something to be published in that particular moment, whether in the newspaper, you know, or Jefferson's a great example. He knew he was writing letters to various correspondents and that they intended to publish those political views in response to some particular thing that had come up at any given moment. Or they, they kept their papers and, like any good archivist, created an archive of some papers, but then uh, in the case of like Martha Washington, burned her correspondence with George and Thomas Jefferson did the same thing with his wife. It was a common practice in the 18th century. So we're not getting the full picture. You're dealing with folks who are still alive, whose interviews will become public in a very short order. And so do you have a sense of how they're thinking about the ways in which they are shaping the story that they're telling? And do you find that, that sometimes people are holding back or that sometimes people are much more willing to be candid as a matter of public interest or, I don't know, to be more crass about it, settle old scores or something to that effect? Uh, sorry, I was a little bit thrown when you said you, I, you were not taking me out to lunch after this interview. You know, you, the Uber Eats is coming right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jim. No, um, that's a, a fantastic question. And it's, it's one that I get a lot, actually, when, when talking to, to people about oral history and kind of the immediacy of it. Every narrator is different, so it's, it's hard to, to kind of, it's, it's hard to generalize the experience mm -hmm. of, of people's kind of thinking about what the past is to them. You can imagine that a, a project, especially like this, it doesn't just involve, I would say, a traditional oral presidential oral history project, just by virtue of the age of different narrators, you get people who are at different points on the trajectory of their professional life. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's somebody who's looking back at the end of a long career. Perhaps it's somebody looking out at the beginning of a career. So whatever they experienced during the time that you're asking them about is already framed by kind of what trajectory they think they're on, kind mm -hmm. of what, you know, the events that occurred during the Obama presidency 
different narrators will have different perspectives in terms of thinking about where these events are going to figure into stories that they may tell 30 years from now, kind of just based on what they think their futures will look like. However, people who participate in oral histories, we do all that we can to make sure they understand that this, the opportunity is for them, um, is there for them to delve back into those memories, reflect on mm -hmm. things and their importance to them. Now we do ask probing questions, you know, it's, this is part of the social responsibility there, you know, and we listen critically based on, you know, the, the voluminous knowledge. I, I say we, in a, I, I hate using that term, but both, you know, within this project and all oral historians, you know, have a responsibility if they, you know, if they think that a story is not truthful or memory is not truthful to challenge the, the narrator on those grounds. At the same time, the point of the interview is to give you know, precisely what makes it so rich is giving the narrator the opportunity to reflect on why they think something like the Iran deal or the Arab Spring is uh, is important to them, mm -hmm. and that's going to be vastly different across you know a variety of narrators based on the position that they were in, the way that they dealt with the consequences of the particular event, their memories of decisions that were taken or could have been taken. So I'd say that, that on the whole, people who choose to participate in these tend to be remarkably honest about their feelings about particular things. And I think the reason is that when you extend an invitation or you bring somebody into a project like this, you're kind of prompting them to think formally about this idea of history in their own life mm -hmm. in a broader story. People always ask me about the settling of scores and you know, did, could something went wrong because of, of someone else. That's always kind of there in the yeah. ether, but I would say it's, it's not something that, it's not the frame that most people choose to think or talk in because I should say like there are cases where that kind of information, individual, disagreements becomes an important part of why, you know, their oh, yeah. own understanding of, of why something went the way it did or, or did not. But there's not a sense of fixation on, mm -hmm. on those things, of, of personal squabbles. Does it happen? Yeah, but it's, it's not the kind of overbearing weight on the, on the historical record that you would think. You know, as we're kind of nearing the end, I do want to actually want to spend some time talking about how you came to this position. You and I were both trained in a typical traditional fashion. We we both ended up in places that we did not expect and probably didn't intend. I think we, we both imagined that we would be sitting behind a desk at a university at the associate level uh, at this point. Well, not quite. You know, we would still be assistant professors, but we would be getting along, you know, towards the tenure path. That obviously did not happen. You are in your position at Columbia. I'm in my position at the Washington Library. But we both had experiences and training that allowed us to move into these positions. And so I'm wondering if you would talk about your experiences, both in uh, your graduate training, but then after that, that helped you land this position, but also make uh, significant contributions to this project. Yeah, I mean, when I found out that Columbia was hiring uh, historians for this project, and in particular, we're looking for uh, somebody who could who could write on the presidency in a global context and research on, on that topic. I was at a point of deep, deep disillusion with my, <laughs> the choices I had made that led me to that point. And I, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll talk openly to anyone about this because I, I think it's kind of important. I don't think there's any general story about paths through academia now because of the way the profession has changed. And so this was in, um, when I found out that Columbia was uh, doing this search and, and eventually that I was hired. This was in the summer of 2019. Mm -hmm. And I was adjuncting at the time in, uh, in Boston. I was adjuncting at uh, Simmons University um, where uh, my partner is a professor of English and also teaching international relations at Framingham State University. But this, so this was, I, I met you on my first night in graduate school. Actually, your, your listeners might like to know that when I went to the orientation in 2009, um, it sort of in late August, uh, to meet our director of graduate studies and to find out what the hell we had gotten ourselves into, there was just 
one person outside of the room who got there early like I did. And I said, hi, I'm Evan McCorvey. He said, hi, I'm Jim Ambusky. And here we are uh, <laughs> 10 years, 11 years later. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my, my professional career took, you know, a number of kind of twists and turns all through which I held out the possibility of landing in a tenure track job with varying degrees of confidence mm-hmm. and lots of intervals of, of lacking uh, such confidence. Despair. Um, so I w- the point I want to make for listeners is that what ended up helping me stand out for this position in, in Columbia's search were several things that I had not really thought were central to my professional profile. Mm-hmm. And it's an argument, I guess, for developing expertise and methodological training outside of what you think is important to your particular intellectual project or mm-hmm. whatever you're writing your dissertation on. Do you want me to go into a little bit of what I did in, in graduate school? Yeah, I think that would be helpful. I mean, I, I, I've talked about my own sort of path on, on various aspects of the podcast over the past year, but um, I think it's, it's always a good idea to have multiple perspectives, uh, you know, especially since, you know, we, we're both uh, Americanists, but I am an early and you are a later. And so, you know, you're operating uh, in, in, in a different path in some ways than I have. So in different methodological approaches. So, you know, I'd love to hear what you did to enable your rise to power now at uh, Columbia University. <laughs> <laughs> the ever unlikely rise to power. So I, um, I did my work in graduate school on the Reagan presidency. I worked with Mel Leffler, historian of U.S. foreign relations. And I wrote a dissertation on the emergence of what we now call democracy promotion programs um, in the United in, U, in U.S. foreign policy, particularly in Latin America uh, during the 1980s. And what was unique about my approach to it, kind of what was my novel claim in the dissertation, was two things. One, which is that, um, and the reason I want to trace these out is there's actually a connection between my Reagan work yeah. and my Obama work, which mm-hmm. is not maybe me- immediately apparent. But one is that in order to understand this history, you can't simply focus on presidential rhetoric or the grand strategic thinking of people like Reagan or George Shultz. You actually have to look at where these programs originated, which is in um, mid-level institutions or among mid-level bureaucrats at institutions like the State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and um, ambassadors who were actually uh, in these countries making arguments about human rights and political transitions from dictatorship to democracy. Caveat, as I always say, that, that the actual democracies that emerged from these were formally democracy, but did not actually mm-hmm. entail the kind of human rights that that Reagan uh, and other officials were arguing they did. Um, my point in writing the dissertation was to show how these mid-level institutions um, create these programs that help Reagan and other Republicans make this argument that democracy and human rights are aligned. Um, not endorsing that argument, simply historicizing it as we do. So the but the second thing I did, which was really influential for my own trajectory, was to say that we if you want to understand the way U.S. power is becoming immersed in these local contexts, you actually have to see the way it's being received from the other side. And this, this kind of thinking is, permeates my field. What used to be U.S. diplomatic history is now, in a good way, uh, is now the history of U.S. foreign relations, this idea mm-hmm. that you actually can't simply study U.S. power uh, flowing outward, but actually have to understand the connections and and nodal points at which it's intersecting with you know other forms of power, other levels of power. And so I used archive travel to uh, Chile, Argentina, Guatemala, Costa Rica, and eventually El Salvador as well in writing the dissertation and then the book manuscript in order to understand how Latin American actors kind of viewed Reagan's policies from the beginning of his term when he came in and said, you know, we're we're not going to care very much about your human rights record to, well, actually, you know, if you hold elections, this is something that we, we see as an improvement on human rights. Mm-hmm. Um, unsurprisingly, dictatorships like Chile, uh, like Pinochet's dictatorship in Chile, received this, perceived this trajectory and policy to be something really significant. They argued in some of their internal documents that Reagan looked a lot like Carter, 
which is of course something that most people on the US side would have thought was pretty crazy. But there's also, um, it wasn't just looking at elite levels of power, but also looking at the civil society groups that um, received money from USAID, from the National Endowment for, for Democracy. That's a, a very quick and kind of messy summary of the dissertation in my now book manuscript, which I'm working on, um, which is under contract with um, Cornell UP, which is that we shouldn't simply understand the presidency by studying the presidency, but they yeah. have to put it in, you have to put it in a global context and you have to understand the kind of programmatic bureaucratic thinking that's going on that creates institutions that help perpetuate mm -hmm. and propel the thinking um, behind ideas like democracy promotion. I finished that dissertation in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, I had a postdoc at Southern Methodist University at the Center for Presidential History. One of the mandates for the Center for Presidential History at SMU is to create what they call collective memory projects, which are kind of issue-specific oral histories about the George W. Bush administration. Mm. Now, in graduate school, to take one step back, I had spent a fair amount of time at the Miller Center in the summers in between my first year and my second and third year, I think that's right, um, working with them on the presidential oral histories that they were working on for the George H.W. Bush and the George W. Bush administrations. So I, while I was really just trying to pay the bills in graduate school, I was obviously intellectually interested in this, but the, yeah. you know, the work, to be frank, was you know, kind of part-time graduate work while I worked on my dissertation, did coursework, I got a kind of immersive education, how you mm -hmm. prepare to interview people for these presidential oral histories, um, which is something the Miller Center had specialized in for a long time. Um, so fast forward to 2015, when I was hired by SMU, one of the great things about that program is they have opportunities for postdocs to get involved in these oral histories, even though you're only there for two years, which I shouldn't say only, that's very generous for a postdoc, but <laughs> it's not the life of an oral history program. Yeah, oh, um, sure. A, a colleague of mine, Tim Sale, who's now at the University of Toronto, had started an oral history project on uh, the Bush administration's decision to surge troops in Iraq. Mm. So while I was at SMU working on my book manuscript, once again, I kind of was able to take on some, this time, more intellectual work in oral histories of uh, the Bush presidency and, and what it was doing in Iraq in 2006 and 2007. I then took a postdoc at the University of Texas from 2017 to 2018. And then to, to kind of come back to the somber note we started on, I had very few job prospects. I had a few promising uh, leads mm -hmm. that didn't go anywhere. It was becoming increasingly clear that barring some type of miracle adjustment in the job market, mm -hmm. that I would need to be thinking more creatively about what I could do with my education or with my background, I should yeah. say. So that's how we arrived in Boston in, in 2019. Um, and I was thinking at the time, you know, just to be frank, I was kind of thinking about what I would do if I left academia, which is when I got the call about Columbia opening this search, which seemed almost too good to be true. And I feel really lucky, you know, to, to have had the opportunity to apply. The reason it was a little bit more than luck is it turns out that those Miller Center experiences and the SMU experiences were really compelling in talking to people at Columbia who were designing a presidential oral history project to be able to say, you know, I've worked on oral history, I've incorporated it in my own work, and I have some ideas if you're starting from the ground up on, on what you could do that would make it look different, mm -hmm. how you could actually deliver on some of these things. And it just, you know, almost by dint of luck, turns out that I could say beyond my, my own work, I had developed this methodological expertise, if you will, in oral history, even while not being an oral historian. And I think there are probably more and more people out there who are doing this. Yeah, I think it's a great point. 
Well, Evan, thanks so much. Looking forward to having you back on the program when this project is further along, but more importantly, when you start writing that book about the Obama presidency that you've hinted at based on these materials. I won't ask you about what uh, your trajectory is so no one steals your thunder. Then I want to just thank you for taking the time out of your schedule, actually, to talk with us today. Looking forward to seeing both the book, but also hearing some of the folks you interview in the coming years. And so we'll let you go put your jacket back on and uh, get to the secrets of the Obama administration. And where uh, is that jacket? I don't know. <laughs> Probably in a closet somewhere. Um, all right, Evan, thanks so much. Always good to see you and we'll talk to you soon. Great to see you again, Jim. Take care. Thanks for joining us today on Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's media department. Be sure to subscribe to Conversations on Apple, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your favorite programs. Have a question for the podcast team? Send it to us at conversationspodcast at mountvernon.org, and we might feature it on the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to mountvernon.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.